Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, about halfway through your Old Testament, this incredible historical book of, a, of the account of the nation of Israel. Nehemiah, we'll start in chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about four trucks I owned. Each one of these trucks I bought, they were at least 10 years, some 20 plus years old. I started with a 64 Chevy truck, a van, then I had that for a while, and then I got, just had something about 64, and I got another 64, and, and then I had a 63, and then a 1980, and all of these pickup trucks I bought were in different degrees, degrees of uh, needing restoration. Some of them just needed some sanding and a little bit of primer and some Bondo. Others needed new sheet metal. Uh, one of them needed new front end work, one an engine overhaul. So all of those trucks, all of the years had produced a lot of different ailments on those vehicles. And I found, especially when they're in South Texas, they don't weather the storm too well. I was thinking about that as I was preparing this series on restoration to restore, that the same is true for us as believers, that life tends to erode and corrode and, and really destroy the fabric of our relationship with God and relationship with others. And it brings us to the place, just like our trucks, where we're all in different levels of needing restoration. So would you agree with me on that today? That as we think about our, our own relationship with the Lord, we're all at different levels of God needing to, to do a work of restoration in our heart. So I just want us to look in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, first of all setting the stage about 140 years after the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah is writing from a place called Persia, the, ca- the captivity, uh, the exile. God had raised up the children of Israel. Maybe you know the story. He led them out of Egypt with Moses as their deliverer, and they came to the promised land. And they decided because of a lack of faith, they weren't going to go into the promised land. So God told them to take a a 40-lap run around the the wilderness. So while they're out there in the wilderness, that generation died off. And and the the new generation rises up. And with, with Joshua and Caleb's leadership, they take possession of the promised land. And God rules them for a while through judges and, and prophets, and then they say they want a king, so God allows them to have a king, and Saul becomes the king and, and builds the kingdom, and then David uh, ultimately is the king and just the pinnacle of the life of the, the, of the nation of Israel. And God had decided that he would give them that land and give them that city and give them that place to build a temple, to bring glory to his name, so that they could be a light to the world, so that the nations would look at Israel and say, wow. We need a relationship with our, the Heavenly Father just like they have. But Israel messed up, and they're just like us. They sinned, and they, they disobeyed God. And God sent the prophets over and over again to, to say to them, please obey God, because if you don't obey God, he, he's going to destroy you. And that's exactly what happened. First, the Assyrians came and took them into captivity. And secondly, the Babylonians came and took the rest of them into captivity. And that's where Nehemiah writes today. He's writing from the exile. The words of Nehemiah, verse 1. Son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. 
Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. So there's the key. The, the land that was supposed to be a place that would bring God glory, the city that was supposed to be the light on the hill, is now in disrepair. Great trouble and disgrace is the way uh, it's worded here. Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, this is Nehemiah's response to the bad news. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Listen to his prayer. I said, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Nehemiah had been interceding day and night for those who are back in the homeland, and he's brokenhearted over it. Both I and my father's house have sinned, he says, um, in, in verse 6. Verse 7, we have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, the statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. So there's confession. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. And if you're, un- if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. See what Nehemiah is saying? Nehemiah is reminding God, God, remember you promised us that even if you scattered us, if we would come back to you, you would restore us. And he says in verse 10, they are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name, to worship your name. Those who really want you to be first place and have a place of preeminence in our lives, Lord, we ask your blessing on them. Be attentive to their prayer. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. Now, this man is the king that Nehemiah is about to go and talk to. What I want to say through this whole series is that God wants his broken people to be restored. He wants us to be restored spiritually. He wants us to to put him back in that place of lordship where he is master and lord over every area of our life so that when we put him in that correct place, then we can impact others and be a light to the world. Do you see that? So here we are today at different levels of needing restoration. What God wants to do is he wants to restore, he wants to renew, he wants to revive, he wants to rekindle so that he would be in the place of lordship in your life so that you can make an impact on those people you encounter every day. We're going to look at that today, just kind of an introduction. We're going to see next time at how, how Nehemiah uh, responds to the word of God as they read the word of God to the people and how they, they respond to that in obedience and come to a time of confession, we're going to talk about the importance with, that Nehemiah and his people had in publicly declaring and confessing God. And then we're going to end up with a week of prayer and fasting. Now, we won't be fasting the whole week, but we'll give you opportunity during that week, and we'll talk about the importance of that. And then we're going to end in October. We've got it scheduled for the 25th, a special day, where we're going to come together in that evening and just worship the Lord. There's going to be a time of repentance and confession and sharing and testimonies and rejoicing in what God has done through that week of prayer and fasting. So let's look at five truths about this burden, about what happens when God stirs the heart of of a follower of Christ, a leader, to restore. Number one, God gives his servants a burden. God gives his servants a burden for restoration when his reputation is at stake. God gives this burden to us so that we can see it from his perspective 
when his reputation is at stake. You know, as you walk your way through the book of Nehemiah, you find out that that phrase, in disgrace, is used a couple of times. God, we're, we're thinking that your people are in disgrace, that others are going to look on us and be disgraced. Nehemiah is not concerned about how they look as much as he's concerned about how their God looks. Did you know that? God wants his name to be held high. God wants his name to be exalted and, and edified and glorified. That's what he's all about. And Nehemiah's concern is that because the city is in disrepair, because the people of God have been scattered, because that place that was supposed to be the place where God met his people, since that's in disrepair, his name is at stake. So God will give a leader a burden for that. By the way, he risked that by calling out a people to himself. I believe that he risked when he said, I want these people to be my light bearers. They didn't do a real good job with that. Some did, some didn't. I believe he takes a risk with us. When he saved you and you became a follower of Christ, he, he took a risk to say, now I'm, I'm releasing you to be a light bearer, to reflect my image to the people around you. God's reputation is at stake. I, I recently met some guys in, in Thailand who are Pakistani refugees. Both of them, their homes and business had been destroyed uh, because of persecution, and they fleed to Thailand, and they got to Thailand and, and discovered they had no place to go. Now they don't have paperwork, and they're floundering. They, they, they can't get a job. They can't do anything. They're huddled in these small rooms with their families. And I've been, yesterday, was messaging one of those men. He, uh, whenever I get on Facebook, which isn't all the time, but every once in a while, because I want to see if my daughter posted something from Vietnam. So I'll get on Facebook, and uh, it'll, a little message thing will pop up, and bloop, Hey, brother, and it's usually Faisal, and I look at that, and I'll respond back to him, and I asked him how he was doing, and he shared not good, and he shared his story this week that they're wanting him to leave the room he's in. He calls it a room. It's not an apartment, a room. He and his wife and daughter are in. They're wanting him to leave that room and go to another one, and they're wanting more money. Basically, they're holding him hostage like they, they can do that with those folks, and he said, and so I, I didn't want to flippantly say, I'll pray for you. But I'm sitting there looking at that message, and he's telling me his story. I said, Lord, what do I say? I, I can't, literally cannot help him. And God gave me that verse that God gave me when I was in seminary, and we didn't have a, the food to eat or the money to pay rent or utilities. And in Psalm 37, the Bible says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their children begging for bread. And I typed that to Faisal, and I said, here's my verse for you. And I typed my prayer out to him, and when I finished that prayer, I thought, Okay, God, now it's up to you. Because I just reminded him from your word that you've never let the righteous be forsaken nor their seed, their children begging for bread. God, you're going to need to come through now. Your reputation's at stake. That's where Nehemiah was. God, I want you to get the glory. I told Faisal, I said, I want God to demonstrate to you that he is your provider. Number two, he gives us a burden for restoration because his reputation's at stake. Number two, the burden to see restoration will lead God's servants to respond in obedience. That burden, if rightly accepted and, and acknowledged, should lead us to obedience, to respond in obedience. This prayer in verse four through 11 in chapter one, I, I just, just verse four again. I sat down and wept I mourned for a number of days, praying and fasting before the God of heaven. And then he shares his prayer. And the very last part of his prayer, 
uh, in verse 11 there is, please, Lord, give your servant success today. So I just want to walk you through what obedience meant for, for um, Nehemiah here. First of all, fasting. He, it says he fasted. Fasting is just the voluntarily abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. It's not a spiritual hunger strike. It's not where you try to manipulate God. It's where you say, I'm going to stop eating this meal or this day of meals or, or one meal a day for a week, whatever, so that during that time I can focus my heart and mind and my attention completely on God. So God can just use that time to speak to my heart and I can worship him. That's what fasting is. You might want to say, well, pastor, I'd like to fast from something besides food because maybe medically I can't do that. You can, there are a lot of things you can fast from. The internet, your smartphone, Instagram, Facebook, TV, all those things. You could say, God, I'm going to give that up for this time to focus on you. We'll talk about that in our time of prayer and fasting as we approach that week. Then Nehemiah, the Bible says Nehemiah prayed. We have that prayer in verse 8 through 10. I like what Jack Taylor says about prayer. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Right now, while I'm preaching, there are people in that room over there praying for this. We believe that's important. We enlist people uh, every Sunday morning, 8.30 service, 11 o'clock, to pray for this worship service. So somebody's praying for me right now. Isn't that great? Nehemiah believed in prayer. And then lastly, stepping out in faith. Nehemiah says, God, give us success. If you look at chapter 2, we won't read all that today, but chapter 2 shows how Nehemiah went back, got permission from the governors, the, the king, and began to rebuild the wall, and he put feet to his prayers. So that's really what obedience means. When God breaks your heart and you see the need for restoration in the people of God, you say, God, here I am, I'm going to pray, I'm going to fast, and I'm going to make myself available to step out in faith so that we can see things from his perspective. That's what happens when you do that. When you fast, when you pray, you see, you see things from God's perspective. I love the story of, of Woody Hayes when he became coach of Ohio State. Uh, he came from a smaller school, and he was standing on the football field when he first got there, and, and he looked around at all the stadium, and there are 86,000 seats. That can be overwhelming. And he's looking at that, and I think it was his son that was with him, could tell that the dad was overwhelmed by what he saw. And he said, Dad, he said, don't worry. He said, the field is the same size that you're used to. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Not that there are 86,000 people watching me, but I know how to do football. The field's the same size. When we pray, when we fast, when we seek God this way, it reminds us that the field is still the same size. God is still God. He's still on his throne. He's the same God who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's the same God who provided, who met needs. He's the same God who restored Nehemiah. God wants to restore. He keeps our eyes and proper perspective let me move on number three when God gives a burden for restoration he wants us to share it with others when God gives a burden to someone for restoration he wants us to share it with others look at chapter two now with me after Nehemiah has gone back he's begun begun rebuilding the wall He said to them in verse uh, 17, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Listen to this. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had told me. So they said, let's start rebuilding. They were encouraged to do a great work. Nehemiah shares the burden. Nehemiah says the, the city's in disrepair. I'm brokenhearted about it. I want to be involved in bringing it back 
to the place where God gets the glory. God has put on my heart a burden for restoration in this congregation, for God to do a work, for God to take us broken people wherever we are. And again, we're all at different places, but to do a work this next couple of months as we seek him and say, God, I I want you to restore me. How many of you, without raising your hand, would say there was a time when I had a closer walk with the Lord than I do today? There was a time where I was passionate about him. There was a time when it was all about my relationship with God, and now other things have gotten in the way and clouded and rusted and corroded that walk with him. My my desire is to share with you that that's what I want God to do, to restore, to restore. That may mean renewal for some of you. That may mean stepping into some some, uh, deeper commitments in your studying of the word of God, in your prayer life. That, that may mean total revival for some of us. To say, God, here I am. I am empty and broken, and I need a fresh anointing from you. But it's my, my calling as pastor, just like Nehemiah, to relay, to share that burden with you and to have you, Lord willing, embrace it. I was thinking about someone who shared a burden with me. It's probably 15 years ago. I was asked to be on the mission committee in our state convention not because I was anybody, but because I had a friend who rotated off the committee and they were looking for names. Isn't that fun? You have been enlisted that way? So I said, okay, I'll do it. And they flew me to Dallas and uh, Grapevine and went into the meeting and sat there and began to meet the mission team on our state convention. And I immediately saw the, the heart and the passion these people had for missions. One in particular, her name is Tiffany. She's now with our North American Mission Board. We still uh, communicate with Tiffany. But Tiffany shared in this meeting with us, the board, of her passion for missions and her desire to to involve people in missions. And and I was mission-minded, but God lit a fire in me by seeing her heart and passion for missions. She led a team of our folks over to Thailand, and they came back and said, yeah, God's at work there. Let's join them. And another team went back to Thailand, and another team back, and, and then we've sent several of our folks over there, the Kennedys, and and uh, Cindy Campbell's over there. Salisa's going to be going over there pretty soon. Kelly and I just came back from there. So I, I trace all that back to this one young lady who had a passion and a burden for missions, especially in East Asia. And she shared that with me, and I caught it. That's my, that's my, my heart's desire for you, that you would catch this, that you would, that you would understand Nehemiah's brokenness because God was broken because his people are broken. Because God's heart was broken, because we need restoration. We need it badly. Number four, opposition awaits God's servants who seek after him. I really would rather not say this, but that's true, and we need to know it. Where there's light, there's bugs. When you start to make a difference for the kingdom, you can mark it down that Satan's going to come against you. I want you to look at this. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Just a little bit of the opposition the Nehemiah experienced. While they're getting ready to build the wall, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard about this, and they mocked and despised us, and they said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Isn't that interesting? They questioned his motives. They thought Nehemiah was there to do some kind of a, a revolution, Look down with me. Go on to chapter 4. You have chapter 3, this description of the wall being rebuilt. In chapter 4, verse 1, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious, 
And he mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt offerings, these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up with their building, he would break down their stone wall. Does that sound like the nyan 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 to you? Man, just I, it's, it's just a, this constant noise of wah, wah, wah. They're questioning the motives. They're questioning everything about what Nehemiah was doing. I think it's interesting. Uh, somebody I was reading noted that they came from all directions. They identified that Sanballat came from the north, the, the Arab came from the south, Tobiah came from the east, and the Ashadites came from the west. All four corners of the globe are coming down on Nehemiah. Folks, when you say, God, I'm ready for you to do a work in my life, the enemy, Satan, is going to bring his attack from all four corners. Let me make a note here. The enemy was not Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom. The real enemy is Satan. He used them to try to thwart the work of God. He used them to try to cause Nehemiah and his folks to give up. I want you to look with me at Nehemiah chapter 6. Here's some things to do when opposition comes. Here's some ways to, to respond to that. First of all, look at verse 3. When they came against him, by the way, Sanballat, they're all mentioned again in chapter 6. They don't go away. They just keep coming with the same junk. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me this proposal. Four times I sent the same response. Can I say this? First thing, when opposition comes, know your priorities. Nehemiah was all about building that wall for the glory of God. He wasn't going to get distracted by those guys and all their nyan, nyan, nyan. When you make a commitment to be restored, when you make a commitment for Christ to be in that place of lordship in your life, you need to keep that as your priority. Don't let things sidetrack you. Secondly, don't be unaware of the enemy's tactics. I went through chapter 6 here, and in verses 4 and 5, we have Sanballat. He keeps coming back. He's persistent. In verse 6 and 7, there's rumors and gossip about Nehemiah and his people. The enemy uses fear and discouragement in verse 9. There are personal attacks on leadership in verse 13. He uses the tactic of, of intimidation. It even says it right there in verse 14. He wanted to intimidate me. That's the way Satan works. He throws that stuff to try to get you distracted from what God has called you to do. By the way, when it comes to Satan's tactics, there's nothing new. I was thinking, what the enemy did in chapter 2 through these people, Satan was doing in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, and I thought, you know what? He was doing the same thing when he made the children of Israel doubt that they could take the promised land. He was doing the same thing. Go all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden. What did Satan do? Lies, innuendos, intimidation, fear, all of those things. And he took a little bit of truth. Yes, God did speak. Yes, God is God, but didn't he? Go back and look at that story. That's the way the enemy works. Be careful about that. Don't allow him that open door. I'll just say this. One of the things I I love about Nehemiah is he was more concerned about obeying God than he was about protecting his position. 
Nehemiah wasn't about defending himself. He was all about, I'm just going to do a work because God's called me to do it. I love that. Opposition will come. I love the story of John Wesley who, who started a movement that became Methodism. He was a circuit-riding preacher in England, a, a strong evangelical preacher, and, and uh, he couldn't preach in the churches because the churches were saying, the church is how you get to heaven. So he said, that's not right. I'm going to go tell the people, Jesus is how you get to heaven. This I'm paraphrasing and simplifying, but this is what happened. So as Wesley's preaching around, he would take his horse, he would go to a town, he would stand up in a, in a, a courtyard or on a street corner or in a cemetery, anywhere he could get a crowd, and he'd preach the gospel. Basically, you go to heaven through Jesus Christ by grace, through faith. And the established religious people didn't like it. They ran him out of almost every town he went to preach. They threw stuff at him and said, get out of here. Well, he was going through a time of his preaching and circuit riding where it was kind of peaceful. And nobody was bucking the system. I mean, it's just so everywhere he went for a little while, things were going well. And he became convicted. And he stopped and he tied his horse up and he got down on his knees and he said, God, I haven't had any opposition lately. Could it be that I'm not in the center of your will? About that time, somebody threw a brick, and it nearly hit his head and hit the wall, and he was startled, and he looked up, and he said, thank you, God, that I must be right in the center of your will. See, we have a tendency to think when the bricks are thrown that we're out of line. We have a tendency to think when things are peaceful in my life, I must be in the center of God's will. Not necessarily so. If Nehemiah had had zero opposition to building this wall, We might say, is that really what he should have been doing? Because the enemy likes to thwart the work of God. Number five, this is what opposition does. It calls us to a greater dependence on God. A greater dependence on God. Look with me at chapter two, verse 20. Look at Nehemiah's response when they mocked and despised. I gave them this reply. The God of heaven is the one who will grant us success. We as servants will start building and you have no share or right or historic claim in Jerusalem. He just said, here's my response. I'm depending on God because God is the God of heaven who will give us success. Look at chapter four. As he is insulted and uh, the questions and the gossip and the intimidation comes. Verse 4 says, listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builders. Now, I don't advocate praying that part of the prayer, but David prayed prayers like that, didn't he? God, take them out. Basically, what Nehemiah says is, God, you handle this because you're God and I'm not. God, I'm going to depend completely and totally on you. My friend Faisal is doing that. He's completely, totally depending on God to come through. When it comes to wherever you are in your walk with Christ, wherever wherever that point in your life is that you need restoration, and God allows the enemy to come with attacks, whatever it is, that should cause you to to cling to the Lord even closer, to, to draw to him even more. To say, God, I really need you. Have you found this out? I have in my prayer life. My prayer life is much more intense and passionate when I'm going through a crisis. Much more devoted and directed and clear and specific when I I am in need. So if the enemy comes, and as he comes, he will. The Bible says he will. He's a roaring lion seeking who he can devour in 1 Peter. Who, when, When he comes, just say, God, this is my opportunity to cry out to you to more deeply 
cling to you. James said, consider it joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the trying of your faith develops patience and let patience ultimately develop perseverance that'll have its perfect work that you'll be mature and complete. Consider it joy that God would allow you as you stand for him to be attacked by the enemy. I made a list of four things that when opposition comes my way because of my stand for Christ, four things that I I see as opportunities. First of all, it gives me an opportunity to grow closer to God in prayer. I already said that. Secondly, it gives me an opportunity to surrender that situation to him. God, here is my situation. Here's my family member. Here's my finances. Here's whatever. God, I surrender that to you. It gives me an opportunity to stand on my convictions, to say, no, I'm not going to give in. You can say what you want, but I believe God's called me to this, and I'm going to stand. And ultimately, it gives me an opportunity to encourage other people who may be struggling. God will use opposition to call me to a greater dependence on him. That's the burden for restoration. That's just a highlight of how I believe God wants to use this time, this next series in our lives. I don't know how many of you have heard of Dave Dravecki. He was a pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. I want to read a quote that I found that addresses what we're talking about, but I, I want to read you a little bit of his story before I read that quote. My story is one of finding hope, courage, and perseverance in the midst of dark and overwhelming uncertainty. In 1988, I was at the top of my game in my life. I not only had a wonderful family, but I was also at the peak of my career, playing the game of my childhood dreams. My opening day victory over the Dodgers was overshadowed later that fall by the discovery of cancer and the removal of half of the deltoid muscle in my pitching arm. After battling cancer in my pitching arm, I came back a year later to defy the odds and pitch once again in the major leagues. Folks, that was a miracle. Despite being told by doctors short of a miracle, you'll never pitch again, I pitched a 4-3 win for the San Francisco Giants that day. Sadly, my comeback was short-lived. Five days later, I threw, and he has in quotes, the pitch that was heard around the world. My arm had split in two. When he threw the pitch, you could hear his arm snap. As I tumbled to the ground, my mind filled with doubt and fear. After my comeback and fall from the mound, the cancer had returned yet again. The arm refused to get better, and so I decided to retire from my dream, the game of baseball, in November of 1989. Finally, the arm along with my shoulder blade and the left side of my collarbone had to be amputated for the fear that the cancer would spread and take my life. Little did I know that the loss of my childhood dream would become a platform to share hope with the suffering around the world. Now, this is a quote I wanted to read, now that you know his story. Looking back, my wife Jan and I have learned that the wilderness is part of the landscape of faith and every bit as essential as the mountaintop. On the mountaintop, we're overwhelmed by God's presence. In the wilderness, we're overwhelmed by his absence. Both places should bring us to our knees. The one in utter awe, the other in utter dependence. God wants us to be restored. As his broken people, he wants to restore us so that we would put him in a place of lordship and preeminence in every area of our life so that ultimately he would use us to make a difference and an impact on other people's lives. Will you let him restore you? Will you let him start, wherever that is right now, 
Let's pray.